0: Um, appreciate y'all being here, and obviously we want to also say thank you to those who are joining us online, and I'm going to do a little shout out to somebody this morning. Um, uh, Oliver Nix, who's one of the young men who went on our mission trip with us, actually lives in Switzerland, and uh, hopefully he's watching today. Maybe he's 82, his sister, but um, uh, Mike will tell you a little bit more about our trip, but just want to say that if Oliver is watching this morning, I think they're about seven or eight hours difference maybe in Switzerland, so maybe maybe he's watching But I appreciate him very much going on our trip. Um, Do you all like stories? I like stories. Um, Much of our conversations involve stories, don't they? We're always telling stories. Like today, when you leave here, you're going to go to lunch and you're going to sit around the lunch table and you're going to tell stories, aren't you? might be about stories about about the sermon, right? But we, we tell stories, right? We tell stories. And we love to hear stories. I love to hear people's stories. I get to know people because they tell their stories. And you get to hear the stories. People get to know me because I tell my stories. Those are really, really important. And we listen to those daily. They're part of our lives. But um, I read an article recently from the Wall Street Journal that talks about uh, this fascinating collaboration where literary scholars and neuroscientists have teamed up to explore the impact that stories actually have on our brains. Have you ever thought about that? Because we know it happens. Um, but this uh, article was, was written by Alison Gopnik, entitled, Want a Mind Meld? Not Melt, but Meld, Tell a Compelling Story, and describes She describes this variety of brain scan studies that show that stories not only shape our thoughts, but also foster a connection between the storyteller and the one who's actually listening to the story. And, And we know that's true. But the closer the connection, the greater the understanding of the story and Gopnip concluded that results suggest that we lowly humans are actually as good at mind-melding as Vulcans or Borg. I think she's referring to some Star Wars nerd stuff. But anyway, um, we just do it with stories. They do it different ways, but we do it with stories. And other experiments have looked at how stories help develop neural pathways and affect our relationships by altering how we understand information. Now, that, for some of us, we may kind of be tracking with that, the scientific part of it, but I didn't really need to hear that study to know that that actually happens, right? We know that stories affect us. We know that our grandparents telling us stories, our our parents telling us stories, um, uh, our friends telling us stories. We know that has an impact on us, and we know that it does connect us to the storyteller. And it may be new information in our culture, but it seems obvious that Jesus knew this information in the first century culture that he was born into because Jesus was a storyteller, wasn't he? And he told these stories called parables, and they really connected with people. He connected with his hearers, his listeners. They heard him, and they connected with his stories. And Jesus used parables to teach, and his parables did, in fact, shape the way people thought, and they formed a connection between him and the listeners. And we also know that Jesus' disciples, because they were very close to Jesus had access and getting better understanding of Jesus' stories and parables. Because how many times in the Gospels do we see where Jesus would tell one of those parables that's kind of like, we go, now, what did he just say? And the disciples, after he told everybody else, would be with him later, and they'd say, what were you? What did that mean, Jesus? What were you talking about? What were you trying to get us to understand in that parable, and so they got a deeper understanding because of their closeness with Jesus and because, and don't miss this, their trust in Jesus. They trusted Jesus. When he told the story, it was for a reason. He was trying to impart truth to them. Well, we've entered into this season of Lent, and we try to focus in on Jesus and his journey to a cruel crucifixion, and as much as we don't really like to think about torture or execution or death especially the death of Jesus, we need to remember that, don't we? We need to be reminded of the price that Jesus paid for our salvation. And His death is how we and all of humanity were given this amazing grace of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, and Jesus took our place. And we can never forget that. Jesus took your place. Jesus took my place. We should have been the one who was executed for our sins, but Jesus took our place. And then the Apostle Paul explained it this way, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. Jesus became sin. He didn't even know sin, but he became sin so that we become, could become righteous before God. And that's the good news of the gospel. And I've heard many of you say that you really like the Lent devotional that we've, we've passed out. Max Licato has a gift, doesn't he? If y'all know what I'm talking about. So many people have said that. He has a way of making the stories in the Bible come alive. He uses word pictures that make you think that you're actually there, and you go, I guess it was like that. I never thought of that. And I'm just amazed at how he does that. And this week in particular was very connecting for me. And when Jesus first started his ministry in the early um, gospel accounts, we read about these stories that he started telling. He called them parables. And those early parables can be classified as parables of the kingdom. These are the parables about the growing mysterious kingdom that was, in fact, already present in our midst and that many times we miss. And so, like Jesus told the parable of the sower, he talked about seeds and growing, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast where you put it in bread and it's mysteriously there and it makes it rise, but you really can't see it. Those were the kind of parables that Jesus taught at the first part of his ministry. And you can kind of see those from the start of his ministry to the feeding of the 5,000. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus makes a shift. And all the stories we see in the Gospels are a little bit different. And they're the parables we call the parables of grace. And these are my favorite parables and probably yours as well. They're the parables that tell the passionate, the selfless, and the amazing love and grace of God, like the parable of the Good Samaritan like the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. We love those stories because it shows this extravagant love that God has for people and for us. And so we really like those. And then we have the parables that run from primarily Palm Sunday, which is coming up soon, but that's the day where Jesus went into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, if you will. And from that day to Good Friday, Jesus told a set of parables in those short four days that we look at and call the parables of judgment. And these are some of the ones we don't really like to hear. Because we don't like to hear about judgment. And I find it fascinating that Jesus waited till the very end of his ministry to tell these. But he had to tell them. Why? Because I'm dying. And you've got to know the truth. The whole truth. And I tried to start it off about this amazing kingdom that is in your midst, that God wants you to be a part of his kingdom. And I told you about the grace of God that wants, that throws a party for a rebellious son and welcomes him home with open arms and kills the fatted calf and puts a ring on his finger and all of that. Those are amazing stories. I want you to know who God is. But before I die, you've got to know there will be a judgment. And you need to know that. So these are the ones that he tells right before his death. So for the next few sundays leading up into resurrect leading up to resurrection sunday i want us to look at those parables those parables of judgment that jesus told closest to his death the judgment parables and i want us to ask this uh, about this what message what message do these parables have for us today as individuals but also as the body of christ as the church of christ in the world what does it say to us what can we learn because Obviously, if they were closest to his death, they're important. Jesus wants us to see and know something. So we're going to start with two of those parables today from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And we're going to look at verses 28 through 46. But before we read those, I want to do a little background of how this ended up. A lot of times, there was something happening. There was a conversation that was happening with Jesus and some other people that led him to tell a certain story. So instead of answering them in a conversation, or maybe even in a controversial conversation, he would just tell a story and get everybody's mind spinning about what is it he's trying to say. So these two particular, there's a context for him. Jesus had entered Jerusalem Near the starting of the Passover, this was the triumphal entry. We celebrate it and call it Palm Sunday. But he came into town, and you remember they laid down palm branches. And behold, here's the son of David, You know the the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is exciting. Everybody's worshiping him, and the Pharisees are losing their minds because people are making a big deal about Jesus coming to town. And then on the next day, on a Monday, Jesus goes into the temple, and he starts overturning tables. He sees all this money changing and things that are going on in the temple. People are supposed to be worshiping God, but they're making money out of, off of out-of-town people who need to exchange their money. And Jesus knows this is going on, and he's seen enough. And he starts overturning tables. And he takes, says he takes a whip, and he drives them out of the temple. And everybody's going, what in the world? Man, Jesus is serious about this worship thing, isn't he? He's serious about His Father and His worship and what it should and shouldn't be. So we see that. So then the next day, which would probably be on a Tuesday, we come to Matthew's uh, context here. And um, after Jesus has, has cleared the temple the day before, He goes back into the temple area and he's sitting there and he's teaching people and the scribes and Pharisees are still talking and reeling about what happened the day before and they come in and they may ask him this question. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? What things? The miracles but coming in and overturning tables and thinking that you have the authority to tell people to get out of the temple. By whose authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? They just asked Jesus right in the middle of teaching some people Now, this is not the first and it's not the last confrontation Jesus would have with the religious leaders. But Jesus knows very well their intentions. He knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to um, discredit him in anything and everything he does. So Jesus knows their intentions, so he says this. He goes, I tell you what, I've got one question for you. And if you will answer this question for me, then I will tell you by whose authority I do these things. So they said, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And so they all get in their little holy huddle and go, oh, how are we going to answer this? What are we going to do here? Because if we say John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you believe him? If it was from heaven and you're acknowledging it is, then why didn't you believe him? They know that Jesus is going to answer him. But if we say from man... We know the people will erupt because they believe that John was from God and he was a prophet of God. So they'll rebel and cause a big conflict. So they just came together and at the end of the head, it goes, we don't know. That was their answer. We don't know. And Jesus goes, well, I'm not going to tell you about his authority. I do these things either. A good rabbi always answers a question with a question, right? That's how they, that's how they work. But it's interesting Jesus is going to answer their question about authority. He's just not going to do it in normal conversation. He's going to tell a couple of parables, and these are the parables he tells. So I'm kind of setting you up for where, how this all came about. So Jesus launches into this parable, and keep in mind this discussion has to do with authority. Whose authority are you, by whose authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to heal people, to overturn the tables? Who gave you the authority to say that you speak? From God. And after these parables, it's clear what authority the religious leaders are under, and it's clear what authority they reject. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21, and these are the parables that he leads with. Verse 28 What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So Jesus asked, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For God came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus is answering the question about authority. The parable isn't just about these two sons where one did what his father wanted and at first was rebellious and then changed his mind and one who said he would and never went. It's much more than that. It's Jesus' response to this question about authority. The first son, as you see, flat out tells his dad, no, I'm not going today. I'm not going to go work in the vineyard. But later, he changes his mind. You ever change your mind about something? We do it all the time, don't we? And sometimes we can, I relate to this guy, because there's times in my life where I tell people, no, I'm not going to do it. My first answer is rebellious, I'm not going to do it. But later, sometimes, I think about what I did, I think about what I said, and I say, no, I'm going to do it, I need to do that. And so Jesus doesn't tell us why he changed his mind, but it seems that there was some time, and he started thinking about, You know what, I was really disrespectful to my dad. That was not honoring to my dad. My dad asked me to do something. He's really been good to me. And he just asked me to go and work. And I told him, no, that's really not right. And so he goes and works in the field. It seems that this son acknowledged and believed in and had faith in his father's authority. And because of that, by faith in the authority of his father, he actually changed his mind and goes to work in the field. But the second son, when asked to work in the vineyard, says, I will, but he did not go. Jesus doesn't tell us why, but we know that he didn't go. His dad had asked him, and he said he would, but he didn't. It seems that this son does not acknowledge and does not really believe or have faith in his father's authority, so he never actually went. He just knew that if I just tell, give lip service to my dad, that's good enough. I don't really have to do anything. It just needs to sound good. And so Jesus then asked the religious leaders a very simple question after he tells this parable. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, what five-year-old can't answer that, Jesus? Obviously the one who went and worked in the vineyard. Which Which of the two had faith in and acted on the authority of their father is what Jesus is really answering. Well, the first one. It's an easy answer, but the parable is more... Than about picking the right son. And he said truly I tell you at the end of this. When they've given the right answer. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom God ahead of you. You're God's religious leaders. You're supposed to be showing people who God is. And what he requires of us. And you are not making it into the kingdom of heaven. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are going in ahead of you. Boy this is incensing them. They don't like this at all. He says, even John, he goes, you want to talk about John? Yeah, John came and guess what? You didn't believe in his authority. You all came down when he was baptizing people and you were trying to figure out why he couldn't really do that and why he shouldn't be doing that and why God's grace wasn't good enough for all these prostitutes and tax collectors. And now Jesus comes in and says the same thing, that God's grace is for everybody because we're all sinners. But they can't get this through their skulls. So the religious leaders did not acknowledge, they did not believe in John the Baptist displaying God's authority. And the same group does not acknowledge, and they do not believe in Jesus displaying the authority of God. Well, why is that? Because they believe that they are the authority. They are the authority. Their righteous words. They're trying to keep the law. And they know in their minds and hearts they can't keep the law, but they have this front that's saying, yes, we can, we do it all the time, we never make a mistake, we follow the law, that's what we do, we are the keepers of the law, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they recognize, I can't keep the law, I've broken the law, I've been rebellious, I've sinned, and they needed and wanted God's forgiveness, and they trusted in God's forgiveness, And his authority to give them that forgiveness. And so Jesus says they repented. There was an authentic life change. And even after you religious leaders saw this authentic life change in those people. You still refuse to believe. And you don't believe in me either. And the religious leaders did not believe they needed to repent. Because their trust was in their ability to keep the law. They were legalists. They convinced themselves that they could keep the law. And that would save them. Their righteousness could save them. They didn't need a savior. They were their own savior. And the judgment here is on those who refuse to trust in Jesus to forgive their sins. That's the judgment. And then Jesus continued. He didn't let them off the hook. If he sees their furrowed brows and they're angry about that, uh uh-oh, maybe I've upset them. Maybe I should tell another story to kind of make them feel better about themselves. Not Jesus. He doesn't do that, does he? He tells another parable, and they think they think they understand what Jesus is saying. But listen to what happens. So Jesus goes on right after this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a wine, he dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Jesus is asking this question to the religious leaders. So what's he going to do to these tenants? And Jesus knows they love judgment. They love judgment. They love keeping people out of heaven. They love that. So he knows what their answer is going to be. And what do they say? Well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. And Jesus said, have you never... Read the scriptures, and he quotes from the Psalms here. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew... (laughs) He was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. If the religious leaders didn't like the first parable, they're really not liking this one. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven in front of us, and now the kingdom of heaven is being taken away from us. You see, Jesus is saying, you were the tenants. God gave you his word. God gave you prophecy. God gave you what you were supposed to do, To you were just supposed to reflect to the rest of the world who God is. That's what you are as a religious leader. You're supposed to show people who God is, His love, His grace, His commandments, all of that. You were supposed to do that, and you've not done a good job at all. You've been horrible stewards of what God has asked you to do. And notice, He's saying, and now it's going to be taken away from you. What do you mean it's going to be taken from us? It's going to be taken away from you, because you've been terrible tenants, and they... Produced their own judgment, didn't they? It should be taken away from them. That's right. And they condemned themselves and didn't even realize it. And notice the tenants in the parables are to be good stewards of what the landowner had entrusted them with. They were supposed to give part of that fruit back to the landowner, but they were not. They did not trust or believe in the authority of the landowner. He was far away. He was out of town. He's not going to hold us accountable. We can do whatever we want. And maybe that's the way the religious leaders thought. So they beat and stoned and killed those who the landowner sent. And this seems to represent in this parable the Old Testament prophets. Because that's exactly what God's spokesmen had done to them, wasn't it? When we read the Old Testament, the prophet said, God is upset, we've got to turn back, we need to repent to him. And they go, oh, you're crazy, God's not mad at us. He would never be mad at his chosen people. And they kept on in their sin until something awful happened. And they got tired of hearing the prophets, so they killed them and they beat them. And they stoned them. And then finally, the landowner, Jesus says in this parable, sends his son. They will respect him. They will respect his authority because it comes from the landowner. But they didn't respect him, did they? They killed him. And they don't realize Jesus is saying, in four days you're going to do that to me. You are going to kill me in four days. And you don't even recognize what's going on. I know you want me, dead, But you don't recognize I'm talking about you. They are set up by Jesus in this parable and they don't even realize it. And they don't really realize it until after they answer the question and they're calling judgment onto themselves. You're rejecting the cornerstone. I'm the cornerstone. You have rejected me. And the kingdom will be taken away from you. And just like the tenants who would not alter their unfaithful stewardship, no matter who the landowner sent, they weren't going to alter it. You can send your son, you can send whoever. We're not altering it. The son, the the servants that they sent were just an interference to their plan. So they killed them, just like the prophets from God. And just, and to the unfaithful stewards of God's authority, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' time, Jesus was an interference to their authority. He was an interference to their plans. You're messing up our plans. You're messing up our authority, Jesus, by what you're teaching and by what you're doing. But the religious leaders now have an answer about Jesus and and his authority. But instead of trusting him and repenting, they look, what does it say, for a way to arrest him. And not only to arrest him, but they will arrest him and they will kill him. We all know that it escalates from here. They wanted Jesus dead and they killed him. But not without God's plan coming to work and saving the world through his son. So what do these parables really say to you and me? I can see by some of your expressions, you're like, now what? (laughs) It's kind of a disturbing one, isn't it? It's a judgment parable. I don't like judgment parables. I like the grace parables. Those are much better. But there is a judgment that's coming. So which son are you? Are you the son that says, no, I'm not going, and then you change your mind? The daughter that says, no, and then you change your mind. But are you the son or daughter who says, yeah, I'll go? I'm going to sing Amazing Grace in church, but I'm going to go right out of here. And if somebody screws up my dinner, screws up my lunch order, I'm not going to show them grace. What do you and me believe about the authority of Jesus Christ in our life? Think about that for a minute. What do we really believe about the authority of Jesus Christ in our life? Do we realize our need for God's forgiveness and grace or do we think that somehow we've earned it because we're a good person and we obey the rules and I'm a rule follower and I go to church every Sunday and I go on mission trips. Isn't that going to get me into heaven? No, those are a result of, of the gratitude we have for having that salvation. But there's a theme in these judgment parables and you know what that theme is? Hear it. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and and resurrection there is no resurrection to a new life without us dying to ourselves to the Craig that thinks he knows it all to the Craig who thinks I have all the answers and I don't really need God I can do it on my own we must die to our own righteousness and put our trust in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ the old must be buried the old must be done away with we must become as Paul says a new creation in Christ and that's what Paul became. And that's what we must become. And we must see that the grace Jesus offers by his death on the cross was and is extended to everyone. Everyone that's ever lived gets that chance. Jesus died for everyone. He opens that opportunity for everyone. But I don't know about you, but I sometimes sit around and think about some people that shouldn't get in. Don't answer that. Maybe you don't. But I bet you do. I bet you do. That person's been so heinous, they don't deserve to be in. That person continues down that road, they don't deserve to be in, but I do. And Jesus makes it clear that he died for everybody. Everybody has the chance, everybody can get in the same way, and the same way is by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we get in. But we can refuse that grace. Like the son who said yes, but rejected trust in his father's authority. Like the tenants who rejected trust in the landowner's authority. I'll figure it out my own way. I'll do it my own way. But if you reject the saving power of Jesus' grace and try to attain it on your own, well then, guess what? God's judgment is going to come. But know this. Jesus died to save you and me from that judgment. Do you hear that? Jesus died to save you and me and the whole world from that judgment. So why would we reject that and think somehow we can do it on our own? But that's the good news of the gospel. That everybody has the opportunity to be saved from that judgment because of what what Jesus did. But we have to put our trust in his authority. His authority in his teaching. His authority on that cross. His authority ultimately and resurrection. We have to put our trust in that, and his authority. So maybe there's someone today that needs to do that, that needs to trust Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that we can escape that judgment. Jesus tells us about the wonderful kingdom. Jesus tells us about the wonderful grace, but there will be a judgment. And you can't wait too late. You can't wait too late because one day you will have to answer And so maybe there's somebody here today that needs to understand that grace. And like the prostitutes, and like the tax collectors, and like the preachers, we all need to humble ourselves before God and say, I need that grace, I want that grace, and I submit to your authority in that grace. Maybe there's somebody here that needs to do that day. So we're going to give that opportunity. I'm going to ask the band to come on up and lead us in, in, in a song. And during this time, and maybe there's somebody that needs to make a decision, I'll be right here and try to walk you through that. But for the rest of us, we're going to pause as we do every Sunday and we're going to remember. We're going to reflect on Jesus and his death, his execution, him becoming sin for us. Him becoming sin for us so that we can recognize how much he really loves us and how much he wants us to, to escape that judgment and be in relationship with him. And we do that. By communion. Jesus set this up. We didn't set it up at Southwest. Jesus set this up and said, never forget how much I love you, how much I want you to escape that judgment. So we're going to take communion together. And if you're visiting with us today, you don't have to be a member of our church. If you're a believer in Christ and you want to participate, we offer that to you. And some of our folks will uh, bring that by a little bit later after we sing a song. So I'm going to ask you all to stand at this time. We're going to reflect on Jesus and how much he loves us. And then we'll take communion together in just a little bit.